Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. Well, hey, Eli, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Will. Well, Eli, thanks for coming on. I wanted to get started and just ask you, um, could you give us a short bio and just tell us a little bit about what you're about and what your mission is? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, so, you know, you know, one way I sometimes start the story is about 15 years ago, I thought I wanted to be an economics professor. And uh, so I, I went down that path and, and uh, started a, a PhD at uh, George Mason. Um, and, uh, loved being at George Mason, but, uh, decided, you know, that actually like, no, this was like a really bad, uh, plan to be a professor. So, um, kind of, kind of pumped the brakes on that one and, uh, instead got into more of the policy world, uh, you know, basically just have always been really interested in technology and, um, you know, that, you know, the policy issues that relate to it, but also just the technology itself, uh, and ended up, um, taking a job at the Mercatus Center uh, at George Mason University and uh, working on tech policy full time. So it was you know, pre pretty much a great match and um, ended up uh, running that department for a few years and then uh, leaving to, uh, to go to, to Boom uh, for a few years uh, as a, a supersonic startup uh, as the first policy hire. Um, and uh, did that for a few years and then uh, you know, left, left uh, in 2019 and uh, took a few months off and then uh, ended up at uh, the Center for Growth and Opportunity where I am now. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's been great. Um, and in, in terms of my mission, uh, so like at no point in this whole process have I known like what I'd be doing five years down the road or, 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 or been right or been right about what I would be doing five years down the road. So I don't, I don't know about a, a, a master plan or anything like that. I don't think that's, that's been in the cards, but, yeah. uh, but you know, I, I, I like technology and uh, I like making things go faster. So basically what I'm, that's what I'm working on. I'm trying to, to, you know, accelerate economic growth through uh, moving, moving technology forward. Excellent. And if I just, from my perspective, which, you know, I don't, I don't really know you. I just, I know your work, just reading your blog and, you know, following you on Twitter and stuff. I, I would say it, it seems like you're really focused on, you know, how do we solve this tech stagnation problem in the West in particular? Yeah. You think that that's a fair reading? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So um, Tyler Cowan was my PhD advisor and he wrote the book, The Great Stagnation. And like, yeah, that's, that's what I want to, that's what I, that's kind of my, my research agenda now is, is ending the, ending the great stagnation and moving things forward. Awesome. And could you just describe what the great stagnation is, what tech stagnation is and, and, and then some potential solutions perhaps? Sure. Um, so the, the way that, uh, one, one of the ways that Tyler defined it in, in his book, the great stagnation is through looking at total factor productivity. Right. So total factor productivity is this sort of economic concept of, you know, once you've accounted for all the labor and capital in the economy, like if you're getting more one year versus another, that's due to something else that isn't measured. Right. And, and that something else is, you know, technology or quality of institutions or something like that. And what's interesting is that we see over time 
uh, if you look back from the late 1940s, which is when we started to have like modern economic data, like through the early 1970s, it was growing at about 2% per year, this total factor productivity. And then uh, around uh, 1973 or so, it, that stopped. It, it went to like about, about uh, half a percent per year. And then, um, and then, you know, brief spurt in the sort of like late 90s, et cetera, um, from the tech boom, perhaps. Um, and then in the like mid 2000s, uh, it just fell off a cliff. And it just, it's basically uh, very, the shell of its former self. It's like, you know, growing at about 0.2, 0 0.3% per year uh, in the, over the last 15 years. So really um, slow total factor productivity growth. And so one of the ways I think about the great stagnation is like, can we get it to show up, you know, you know growth again to show up again in, in that statistic, um, you know, growth that isn't accounted for by just like more people entering the workforce. Um, and, and, you know, that happened by the way, right. In the 1980s, like a bunch of women who weren't working right. before, like, like we're working. Right. And so you can get more output if you work longer hours, that's not necessarily what we want. We want more, more productivity in the hours that we work. Um, so, so yeah, when, once, once TFP starts growing really fast, like that's when I'll be like, okay, that, the, um, the great stagnation is over. Got it. And I tend to think just, just for the listeners and Eli, I'd love to hear your, your feedback. I tend to think a lot of our political problems are downstream from this and that, you know, increasing polarization is, is kind of a symptom of the fact that the, the pie is not getting bigger as fast as it used to. So it's like, there's less to divvy up to particular interest groups to make everybody happy. I don't know. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, I, I maybe it cuts both ways. So I think that that like what you're explaining is like for the mo for most of human history, right? We've grown up in this zero sum sum economy, right? For for hundreds of thousands of years, humanity had a zero sum economy, right? Like the only yeah. way you could get more stuff is if you take it from someone else, right? right. And 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 so we economic growth breaks that equation. Like we can all get wealthier uh, over time. And so when you get to a world where there is technological stagnation, then you're back to that zero sum world. Right. And like all of our worst instincts, all of our most, you know, uh, destructive instincts come out. Um, you know, at the same time, it may be the case that it's, you know, primarily cultural changes that are, you know, the, the so, you know, if you want to think about what's the root cause of this, I, I think that sort of like the proximate cause is a lot of policy stuff, which is why I'm interested in the policy questions. But if you want to think, well, what's the root cause behind all these policy shifts? Uh, maybe it's culture as well. And, uh, you know, uh, so that's something I'm, I'm toying with now is why, you know, <laughs> you know what, what really is the root cause here? And, and you know, uh, noodle, noodling on that. that. That's really well put. What do you think some of the root causes are? So you mentioned, you know, maybe policies have changed. You know, it, it does seem to me at least that, I get the sense I wasn't around in the New Deal, but I've got, um, you know, so I got a great uncle who's 95. So he's like, you know, on the tail end of that. And he used to talk, he always talks about how, you know, things used to, it seemed like things worked a lot better. So, and, and when I think about the New Deal, I think of like all the smart people going to Washington, building all, founding all these institutions from scratch. And maybe there's just like this entropy in organizations and they just start to work less well over time you know the bureaucrats kind of take over and they get farther away from their original mission now you know i i don't know it, it depends if you're more libertarian you're probably skeptical that it ever really worked very well but you know we were able to do manhattan in this like crazy amount of time but now the department of energy just like really sucks from where i'm 
Sid. I don't yeah, know. What, so, what do you think? Well, well and so um, in terms of like what's the root cause, right? Like the, yeah. the, the cultural cause or, or something like that. Um, so w- what I've been kicking around is an idea that so we've humans have always been sort of like status seeking, right? And and, and we care care a lot about about our status. Um, if you were, you know, even in that zero sum economy, uh, you know, that we evolved in, right? If you were the tribesman that like killed the biggest animal and right. you, know, you 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 slaughtered the mammoth, and your tribe could take a week off and like just have a festival, and like right. you were the man, right? Like you 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 got you got tons of praise and stuff like that, and so. Um, we've always been very status conscious. We're evolved for that. Um, you know, you could think about like the, in the world before mass media, yeah. um, that status, you know, mostly played out at the scale of like your, your neighborhood or your town or whatever. And so like that status competition, right. It's like relatively small in scope. Right? Does it doesn't. It, it doesn't. It, you know. It's like the the disagreements aren't that big, right? The like you 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 hate your neighbor because they have like a slightly nicer car than you, and um and there's like there's not really like a culture war that comes out of it, right? It doesn't occupy your thoughts as so much, right? And then and then you add mass media to the mix, and you know I, I you know you can think of the internet as like pouring rocket fuel on mass media. Got it. Uh, and 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 we're all like focused on you know, this more national or maybe even global culture war. And it's, it becomes like the differences become so stark and where it's all encompassing. And, you know, we, uh, whereas, you know, before it like occupied a small part of your brain, but for the most part, like you're still cared about material progress. Like now it's like occupying your whole brain. And then, and then like every policy change that is suggested you have to think about it first in terms of like, well, whose status goes up and whose status goes down with this change, right? Like if we're going to re- reform the postal service, right? Like who, the, whose status goes up and whose status goes down? Or if we're going to like reform education, like, well, is that lowering the status of teachers? Um, you know, like, like, and, 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 and so on. And so like people um, react, I think, negatively to, um, to these some of these like zero sum you know like static that's the other thing is like status is zero sum right like almost by definition right? if you're raising yeah. if you're if you're or at least at the level of you know a pol- the policy change is coming in and, and changing things it, it's going to raise the status of some people and lower the status of other people and and like that's like our monkey brains basically um reacting violently to it and like nothing good ha- can happen anymore got it interesting so it's something like um it used to be if if we both lived in a small town, you know, you could be the best physician, I could be the best attorney, and they, we could all find our own like niche. But now you're competing against you know eight billion people or something like that, and it's suddenly much worse in that sense. Like harder. Or, to find or it's a place. like it's a, or it's like maybe it's like you know, you're a, you're a physician, I'm a physician, and we hate each other, and like we like whatever we, we like want to be the best and, and yeah. whatever, and and we're competing for status within our local community. But for the most part, like that's pretty small, like small potatoes, a small, small thing in my mind. Right. Like, like, uh, and I really care about getting new cars and, you know, Not new it. TVs and, you know, whatever, whatever the technology of the time was that, that people wanted to have, like, they still really cared about progress, about material progress. I uh, got because it. Because they're not, 
um, they're not like <laughs> culture war is not all encompassing, right? It doesn't it, feel it's like so little, little skirmishes, little skirmishes at the level of the neighborhood where you like actually like mostly agree with the other person on most questions because they're they live near you and they're pretty similar. Um, Got it. That's that's pretty different than um, than you know like all the other questions that we uh, <laughs> get confronted. Right, with. right. So what you know. Do you have any thoughts about a way out of this? You know, it seems like just kind of like almost inbuilt, right? Like it's like, right. well, unless you just go blow up the internet or something, it's, it doesn't go away. Yeah. So I think, I think that it's going to, I think the only way that I can think of is like sort of hard fought policy changes that, um, you know, <laughs> that, uh, that, you know, like work, working through sort of the, the actually more proximate causes of the, of the stagnation. So that, Got it. Um, <laughs> you know, the, so that's that's why I focus where I do. I'm not going to fix the the culture, right. um, and, but <laughs> I can but I can do a deep dive on a particular policy issue and you know convince um, a bunch of people that that you know maybe it's it's the right uh, solution for for this problem and make things a little bit better. And, and so maybe maybe through that process we can get growth moving again. Got it. And I, I want to talk a lot about those policy changes, but I actually have a kind of tactical question. You know, what does that look like? Is it just calling congressmen and just like, and, and educating them about how, you know, better to, is it calling bureaucrats within the, you know, federal agencies like, hey, this would be better policy to create? What, what does that look like? Like, what is an effective kind of strategy? And I know people do this because lobbying seems to be effective. People pay for it. So, um, you know, I think that it's, varies on the, by the issue and it's gotcha. it's like it's like you have to be very it's a, like a lot of um it's not so much a strategy is like very tactical a lot of tactical awareness and, gotcha. and a lot of thinking about like where, where are the opportunities you know lobbying like does work but it's interesting the, the mechanism by how by which yep. it works right it works because the staffers don't have bandwidth right to like know oh, really? about all these things right so so it's like you, you know, educating the staffer on like you're not you're not persuading a member of Congress who doesn't agree with you to agree with you. Right. You're 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 uh, it's called a you know legislative subsidies that is the model that's sometimes talked about here. That that what you're actually doing is like you're finding a member of Congress who would agree with you if they had the information or or like already agrees with you but doesn't have the information to back up, you know, in a in a deep way, and Got then it. you're providing them with the information. Uh, like that, that's like the model that actually works is that, um, because the, you know, the offices are, you know, are pretty small and so on, but I actually, I mean, I, I focus a lot on, um, just convincing elites, right? Like, like, I, I think that, um, there aren't, you know, like, first of all, we need to agree that we are stagnating. Right. And like, that, there's people important. who that's don't right. agree with that. Right. And, and so, you know, and, and so, um, so, you know, sort of like just convincing people like this is a problem that we need to like address and it's, it's really bad, I think is an, is an important piece of it. So I, I think a lot about a lot of what I do is not really for policymakers. It's for people adjacent to policymakers who will sort of like affect the, the culture of, um, you know, policy adjacent people, right. So that, so that they, right. they, um, so they all sort of internalize the idea. Okay, there is stagnation. There is stuff we can do. Like these, there's like concrete technologies that are that need to be moved forward, and and we need to we need to find solutions to make that happen. Got it. Got it. Um, 
in, in what ways, I, I want to zoom out a little bit, in what ways has, has policy failed um, and prevented a lot of innovation? Is it just, you know, I, I've heard you mention uh, the NEPA legislation. NEPA, yeah. NEPA, yeah. Um, so is, what does that look like? I don't know. So uh, so NEPA is, is you know, and it's, to me, it's my favorite villain, right? Because it's um, it, it's just so atrocious, like what it does. So there's a, there's a law that was passed in 1969, I guess took, took effect January 1st, 1970. And it basically said, um, you know, we care about the environment. Um, that's like Congress had a statement that said, we care yeah, about the environment. And, and before any agency of the federal government takes any major action that could affect the human environment, it's required to do a detailed, produce a detailed statement of like what the effects could be. Right. Got it. So no, no actual protection in this. You just have to do a report. Just, you have to do a, you have to do a report. Got right. It. And say, say what it would be now. I mean, so, so there's a few things. So, so like one is that like major actions by a federal agency has been interpreted to mean everything, right? Every action. Oh, really? So like, yeah, like any action to do. <laughs> that could affect the, the human environment um, has to go through a report. Um, and so, um, so, so, and then basically, if you want to um, also say that you don't affect the human environment and therefore you shouldn't have to do this report, you have to do another report to prove that. Oh, really? <laughs> right. So, so it's like, so, so, so the, the, the report that Congress like wrote about that you have to do if you, if you are affecting the human environment. It's called an environmental impact statement. Um, and then what this other report that you could do to show that you have no effect on the human environment is, is, uh, is called an environmental assessment. And, um, and so you have to do that if you, if you don't want to do the environmental impact statement and show that you have no effect. And, and so, um, you know, the environmental impact statement, um, you know, takes varying amounts of time, but like, uh, like an average of something like five years to oh, do. God. Jesus. Right. And, and then the environmental assessment, you know, is like one to two years, gotcha. uh, probably, probably about two years, typically. Uh, and, and, and both of these with the regulations that have implemented NEPA, right. The, uh, that have, have, have sort of done this, like have created like long drawn out processes by where there have to be public meetings and you have to like, um, and you have to have to do this. So, so these documents, like the envir environmental impact statements can be like hundreds or like with a with appendices and stuff, thousands oh, of pages long, Jesus. right? You have to have public meetings to to hear about this, and right. and and like when you get to the end of the process, the government can still say like we know that this has bad effects for the environment, but we're going to do it anyway, right? There's no there's no like there's no like substantive environmental protection here. It's um, just paperwork. It's and and it's popular with the law is popular with environmental attorneys, right? Sort of like activist attorneys, because you can, you can stop any project by, you know, gotcha. by like suing on these grounds or, or, or many projects by stop suing on these grounds. Like the environmental assessment wasn't carefully done enough, right? Or the, or the environmental impact statement didn't consider this. And you can get a court to like come in and say, okay, we're gonna send this back to the agency and they have to do a better one, right? Um, Jesus. So, Jesus. so it's it's really bad. It's like this huge roadblock. Uh, Anybody it, it can is, just throw up. It is a massive roadblock. It's like basically like NIMBYism, uh, you know, times a million. <laughs> um, and and um, 
Yeah, so it slows down projects and, and you can't do any of the work on the project until this is done, right? You're oh not God. allowed to like do commit any resources to it, like in terms of like putting a shovel in the ground. You can't start digging um, like like the un like the the you know, maybe maybe you can't um, you know, you're going through an environmental impact statement for one element of the project. You can't you're not allowed to like assume success on of the of the environmental impact statement. Oh god. Of the decision at the end before you start doing it. So so basically, you know, I think about like uh, an investor, right? It, it, so the other thing I should say is the law as written applies to federal agencies, but it also um, applies to to any federal action, right? So it's, it's, it's the decision to, you know, the decision to approve a permit. Oh, okay. Right. Oh, so by a private company. So, so the private company says, like we want, you know, so uh, a great example is what the boring company is doing between DC, they're building a tunnel between DC and Baltimore. It's super cool. Like yeah. it'll take you, you know, in 15 minutes from DC to Baltimore or vice versa uh, in an autonomous electric car underground, no traffic. It's awesome. Like it sounds great, right? And super cheap, um, you know, to, for them to, for the, for the boring companies to do that, they, they're going to the park service, I think, and they're saying, we want to do it uh, under the, the Baltimore Washington park, Parkway. We want to, that's where we're going to do it in that, yeah. in that right of way. And so the government has to say yes or no to that question. And that the act of saying yes to that is considered a major federal action. Ah, uh, right. Jesus. And so, so then like the boring company has to go through all the expense of producing essentially the, I guess it's the park services report. But like right. the boring company has to do it and like they have to shepherd it through the process to get it approved um, as if they were the federal agency almost. Right. So it's so this doesn't just affect the federal government. It basically makes our government very deliberately slow and stupid in terms of like being able to get come to a decision quickly. Um, and 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 it creates opportunities for for, you know, sabotage and, and opportunism. Right. Um, all, you know, all the fights about like the Keystone XL pipeline, those are all like NEPA related. I mean, like, oh, like really? they, it it's not actually like in the, in the news coverage, but like, that's actually what they were fighting about was the, uh, the environmental impact statements and stuff like that. Oh, wow. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's, it's extremely damaging and um, to, to like have this play out, but it's, it's also like by environmentalists, it's considered the Magna Carta of the environmental really? movement and it is not going anywhere so the best we can do is like little tweaks around the edges and maybe like slight reforms and stuff to try to get things moving faster so um right. so, so, like, oh, so that's so, so so yes so so our that's why we're stagnating like that plus uh, you know several of the things that are kind of like that gotcha and it does seem like Oh, it's just so frustrating, right? Because it, it, at the end of the day, you don't have to actually, you just have to produce this report, right? And it seems like th there'll be some sense, like if we could get the environmentalists on board to actually have like, you know, we're actually going to do something that's, you know, it's much quicker process that actually, you know, accomplishes your goals and, and gets us better outcomes on the environmental side, but also doesn't, you know, destroy all our ability to do anything at all. It'd be really positive, but and, and you can, I mean, you can weaponize this in so many ways. It doesn't have to be environmental. So I just, um, I just saw a proposal from Viasat to put NEPA review on Elon Musk's or on SpaceX's low Earth oh, orbit constellation, okay. because Viasat operates a geosynchronous constellation. Oh, 
and they don't want the competition from the low earth orbit people right, right? so it's like you can you can like sabotage so you really can use it to just blow yeah. competitors out yeah oh, yeah it's horrifying jesus <laughs> jesus it's so interesting to me when there's you know there's huge things like that that you know you go through college and all your civics classes and you've never even heard about it and it's it's so important right um, right a big block yeah and of- i have a lot of friends who are like oh the reason we're stagnating is because you know basic science is you know less productive or whatever i was like no <laughs> i don't think that's the reason guys <laughs> like like it's it, it this is much more fundamental Right. Yeah. It's really important. Uh, have you ever, uh, speaking of basic science, have you ever heard of Don Braben? This is an aside in his book, Scientific Freedom. It was just re-released by Stripe Press a couple months ago. Yeah. Heard of, but but haven't read it. Yeah. So he was talking about tech stagnation in the early 2000s. Um, and he, he has this thesis. He was, he ran a program at BP called Venture Research. Uh, he was a physicist. Um, he had, has this thought that funding, Funding model switched around 1970, where you could, if you were a scientist in the university pre-1970, you could get like a little bit of money and just work on whatever you wanted to. And you mm-hmm. have this complete freedom to like pursue right. whatever you want. But then that switched and it has to be directed. And you, this is a great transition to the next question I have. And you, you have to spend all your time being a salesman or, you know, half your time being a salesman for grants. Sure. And then uh, that selects all the weird people out. You only get the salesman yeah. scientist and there's all these selection effects. And also, you know, the grant process is, is really messed up. Do you see any alternatives to the grant process? You know, it seems to me like the grant process create this competition where you keep spending more and more to win the grant, you know, and, until you spend the, you know, up to the cost of the grant to try and win it. You know, I see this a lot in education. It seems like it's like we're hiring all these grant writers. Yeah. And- um, you know, I, I mean, I, I think that there's, you know, sort of the common solutions, there's like prizes, there's, um, you know, you know, different, different ways, you know, hand out more money and, and just don't, don't ask a lot of questions right. and just see, see what the results are and stuff like that. I, you know, I, I think we should have like a, a ton of experiments on that, but ultimately at the end of the day, like it, it's not, I don't think it's the science, right? Like I think like when right. you think about like my Twitter account, right. Is like yeah. full of science, science porn. Right. Like right. I will like find some cool scientific study yeah. and I'll tweet about it. And I'll be like excited about how great that scientific little, you know, mini breakthrough is or something like right. that. But like, ultimately it's got to translate to some sort of product, right? right? Exactly. For it to affect productivity, right. In the same, same root word. Um, it's you, you've got to have that, that tr- sort of translation step of like, we've, we've taken this breakthrough and we've made it into uh, we've come to market and, and you can now use this and at, at scale, like if, if, so Got if it. it's, if it's, so I think about something like CRISPR, right. Huge scientific breakthrough. Um, we still can't use it at scale. Like there, it isn't, it, there's no approved treatments that use CRISPR yet. Right. And, and, it, and we've awarded a Nobel prize to the, the discoverers. Um, and, and so I mean, like, so I, so I, I, I favor a lot of experimentation in terms of like yeah. how we, how we fund the science, but ultimately I think it's only going to get us so far because we're hamstringing the translation in, into mass market products. It's yeah. not allowed. Yeah. That that's really interesting. And, and that actually, that I want to, I'm going to run back a little bit. You know, what is tweaking around the edges look like when you're working with something like NEPA? You, you um, know, what can yeah. you do? So, um, so there's a bunch of things. So one is we can do what the Trump administration did uh, last year, 
which was they revised the NEPA implementing regulations. Got it. So they, so they, so there's these regulations that are housed in the um, Council on Environmental Quality, which is the White House office. And they basically state how agencies are supposed to comply with NEPA. And you can, you know, you can tweak those regulations um, to make them, um, to make them, you know, less burdensome or like quicker to do, or you can impose requirements in there, right? And so right. some of the requirements, you know, that the Trump administration put in there are, we're, we're going to have a clock, right? Like you've got to do, if you have an environmental impact statement, you have two years to do it. And, and that's it. It's like two years. <laughs> uh, it's still a long time. But um, but uh, but that's the um, but that's like one kind of tweak you can. Yeah. And, and they, there's also some debate about which kinds, which what's the scope of all the effects? Because as as we all know from chaos theory, like everything affects everything else, yeah. right? Like a butterfly flaps its wings. It's exactly. like you right. know, like like you Great. could affect I'm anything, having... right? Yeah. So how how long does this report have to be? Right. And so, um, so actually like cabining the scope of that, That's and good. there's a lot of case law on this too. And so a lot of what the administration did was bring in the case law and like try to set definitions based on that. Um, still very much opposed by the activists. Um, but, but that, that, that regulation did go through. We'll see if the Biden administration wants to change it at this point, or if it gets, you know, I don't know where the court challenges are. I'm sure there's court challenges to it. Um, the other thing you can do is, uh, you know, one thing I'm thinking about is, um, and there's people in Congress thinking about it as well. Uh, Senator Lee, by the way, I should say, has uh, uh, introduced a bill called the Unshackle Act um, gotcha. that would that would address some some finer points around around NEPA. Um, but one of the one of the things that I would like to see is just reporting, uh, reporting on like how many um, environmental well we pretty much know how many environmental impact statements the agencies are doing how many um, environmental assessments are they doing right i think the answer is tens of thousands oh, jesus right a year right so so maybe maybe you know hundreds of maybe a hundred thousand or something or more uh, across the whole federal government um but we don't know nobody knows the answer to that question oh, as far as i can tell and and then and then when you look at the you know if you had a, like a list of like here are the you know twenty thousand uh, environmental assessments that we completed last year, like are five thousand of all like of them all like basically the same thing? And if so, what you could do is you could require the agency to go through what's called a uh, a, a, a rulemaking to do what's called a um, categorical exclusion, and you could say we have assessed like this set of facts like gotcha. the, you know the, these parameters and as long as your project falls within these parameters like we know the environmental effects of that and we don't have to do a new study and so they could go through rulemakings that sort of like reduce the amount of paperwork that they have to do in the future or that the, or the, the people applying for permits and stuff so i would like to see a lot more categorical exclusions and some sort of forcing mechanism to make agencies actually do those um rulemakings gotcha that's really smart it's a smart way to handle that and kind of work around the edges um, I, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, some blog posts you've written before. Sure. Is America just too big? Do we need to break America up into smaller, you know, chunks that are more manageable? In, in, so um, probably we don't. I, I, you know, like I have, uh, I wrote that post the week, you know, like actually the week before Donald Trump was elected. Oh, you really? know, because I thought. Um, Here we go. I, I didn't. I didn't publish it until after. 
but uh, but I, I wrote it before because I was just so horrified that that Trump had gotten as far as he did, right? As right. It was a major. Uh oh, this far. <laughs> and and um, and I thought and I saw like you know the the sort of like the just the cultural assumptions that were being made in, in right. different parts of the country and so on were just so so different. And it seemed irreconcilable. Right. Um. And so, so I, I, you know, Hillary or you know, Trump won, and then, um, and then I sat on it for a week, and I said, okay, I'll still publish this, uh, and change, change, change the opening paragraph or whatever it was. Um, and you know, I think that the diagnosis is right that we we actually do have a lot of um, a lot of different cultures. Like we're actually, you know, I think eleven cultures is what some people have said that yeah. are actually eleven distinct cultures in the U.S. Uh, they're broken up geographically and so on. Um, I think that that's that's probably right, and that we we shouldn't. It's not ideal that we're all having to um, having to like you know navigate. Especially that. when you think about all the status stuff, right? Like we're yeah. raising and lowering like certain certain things in in, in status, and and we, if you come at it with different cultural assumptions, you're going to disagree on a lot of stuff, and it creates a lot of unnecessary conflict. And so. Um, so I think that that diagnosis is right in terms of breaking up the country. Like I, I am, I, I, I think I even in that post I did, wasn't really coming out in favor of right. that. But I've come to even even more since then say like, well, that's not really a good answer either. <laughs> and and a lot of the reason is just geopolitical. Like I see yeah. like what would what would happen to the world? I mean, if the U.S. fell apart, like the world would be screwed. Yeah, right. Like I mean, you think about the 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 security services that we provide you know, for, for the globe, essentially. Right. Um, it, it, so I, I don't see it as a good solution, but I do see it as like, still like a pretty good diagnosis. Gotcha. Yeah. It also seems to me like the, the primary cultural distinction is between urban and rural now. So it's like, there's, even if one, you're even to think yeah. about it, it's just like, it, it doesn't geographically make any sense, but yeah, it, it is interesting that we do have these problems. It's like, uh, no one seems to ever talk about their local governance issues anymore at all. Yeah, it's all about yeah. like what's going on in Washington. It's like, yeah, yeah. You, you, you know, you, you hate the people on the other side of you at the national level and at the local level. It's just like, you don't even think about it. Yeah. Don't even think about it at all. It's really weird. Really, really odd. Um, should we care about uh aviation innovation i know you know planes have been getting slower i, I love the concord when i was a kid i thought it was the coolest thing ever. yeah never got to fly on it because they got rid of the darn thing yeah um, what happened there and what can we do to, to speed that up i know people are finally working on that you've worked on that a little bit yeah uh, so i mean yeah i actually i spent two and a half years of my life uh, at a startup working on this um so yeah so aviation has absolutely stagnated right it's if you look in the sky today it's all tube and wing designs for for airliners um it, it, actually the stagnation is even more obvious in general aviation it, like the, the well, we small can't like the, we two, can't even keep the 737s in the air anymore <laughs> yeah yeah well there's that um uh but but i'm thinking about like the, the two-seater the two-seater okay. planes the yeah. four-seater planes right the, the small private pilots and stuff. like those are designs from world war ii essentially right like they're basically small tweaks right? new avionics and, and so on but like uh but basically like pretty similar to to you know late world war ii or early post-war era um, there were a lot of people 
who came back from World War II um, and had pilots, you know, the ability to pilot something, yeah. like learned, learned how to fly. And so people thought that was going to be like a big thing. It's like, well, we've taught all these people how to fly and now we're going to have like this booming general aviation sector. And it's just declined, declined, declined. Um, and, and the designs have gotten no better. And now maybe that's changing a little bit with the EV toll designs yeah. uh, for, for air taxis and so on. And then, and then the airline stuff, you know, a lot of it's, um, you know, hopefully uh, changing soon with the supersonics and hypersonics. Uh, you know, I was at Boom, they're pursuing a Mach 2.2 design, you know, maybe, you know, I, I don't know what the passenger number is now, but maybe like 60 passengers, uh, you know, um, so 10% faster than Concorde, maybe a little smaller to make it more manageable, um, both from the economic side and from the you know, manufacturing side. Um, and, you know, that you would, you know, you'd think with, with modern, modern, uh, modern tools, right? So, so Concord was designed on slide rules on paper with no computers, right? And right. wind tunnels, yeah. like every, every, you know, like with, with, you know, computational fluid dynamics, you can take a airplane design and test it in, you know, a few hours on yeah. Amazon, you know, the Amazon cloud. Whereas, um, you know, 50 years ago, right, when they were designing Concorde, they would take, a, a, you know, a model and put it through a wind tunnel and get data back in takes like six months, Jeez. right, to like study it. So it's like yeah. they did, they, they did Concorde using those <laughs> right. tools, right? And then, and then aluminum versus carbon fiber, like, uh, it's just night and day, like the Concorde would actually, uh, grow and shrink about 15 inches oh, over the course of a flight so you have this the exterior that that grows and the interior has Jesus. to stay the same size <laughs> and the whole thing has to be airtight right like yeah. it's like that, that's that's crazy um and so with with carbon fiber you don't have that as much of that problem um so uh so it should be a lot better today right uh uh and and but we still don't have it right and 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 it's still going to be you know uh I think Boom is is uh, forecasting entry into service at 2029. Arion's uh, doing a business jet at Mach 1.4. They're thinking like 2026. So, so like, and those are the earliest ones. So for the next five years, you can't get on a supersonic plane, right? Yeah. Like, and 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 you know, we had Concorde. So, um, so there, so yeah, so there's just so much we could do. And you think about air taxis and and you know, flying around town, getting to the yeah. other side of town in five minutes. You know, if you live in a big city, is a big deal. Yep. Um, and, uh, and and you could do a lot more safely than helicopters too, because helicopters are really dangerous. Right. Yes. Um, so um, so there's tons of stuff we could do. Uh, there's just um, you know, autonomy in aviation is something I've I've been thinking a lot about lately because um, everyone's focused on autonomous cars, uh, but okay. actually, roads are hard to be autonomous on like the sky is really easy That's there's right. nothing up there <laughs> no, no. right there's like you have to avoid birds right yes. you have to avoid like other planes who all have transponders yep right like that's that's not so hard and so like like landing landing and takeoff right maybe a little challenging but not that hard like we have, we have auto landing and auto takeoff systems right. already so like it's it, it, it's a much easier problem but you know we're we're, we're spending all our effort uh, on, on cars, I think it's a, this is another regulatory issue, right? And everything on airplanes has to be certified before it comes to market. 
Gotcha. And everything on cars is for the most part, it's you can do what you want, but then we might issue a recall, right? So it's like gotcha. pre-market approval versus post-market surveillance. Uh, and that's like another way that we are, uh, you know, in aviation where we're kind of limiting innovation. Got it. Is that a better model? Do you think in general, just switching to post-market surveillance valence versus, you know, I would, yeah, I think, I think it's a, I think it's a much better model in most, in many cases, um, you know, maybe not for like, I don't know, nuclear reactors or something like that, but, um, but maybe even there, <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I, I think like in terms of like, like pharmaceuticals, right. Like, um, right. Our, our, our tolerance for risk is way too low and it, maybe it makes sense to like say, well, you know, this, this drug, um, you know, hasn't been well studied and you can take it if you want. And we're going to do surveillance on it. And, you know, you're going to report your results if you take it. And if it turns out to be bad, uh, we're going to issue a recall and people are going to stop using it. That's, that's not that much different from clinical trials where you have like informed consent of the participants and you're monitoring for data right. and so on. And so I think, I think um, having that, uh, that approach, it's a, little, it's a little riskier, but I think it also it balances type one and type two errors a little more. So uh-huh. like, like, like FDA is very concerned about making a type one error, but they don't care about making type two errors at all. <laughs> can you, like, can you kill, talk killing, about that, killing that people? Distinction? Yeah. Yeah. So, so like, they don't want to, they don't want to, uh, they care much more about approving an unsafe drug than they care about not approving a safe drug. Yes. Right. So, so if, if there's a drug that could save a thousand lives and the FDA just sits on it and doesn't approve it, that's not meaningfully different from the FDA killing a thousand people by approving a drug right. that it shouldn't, right? Like the, the, the same number of people die in the end, right? right? It's the same. Um, exactly. and, and, and the FDA is very concerned with one type of error, but not with the other, um, because those are the incentives we've given them, right? Um, so I would, I would, yeah, I would like lots of talented people at the FDA. I want them to continue studying drug safety, right? Uh, but they could just do it in a post-market sense where they're they're gathering data on you know here's the this patient that took this drug and here was the outcome and you know there here were the adverse effects and so on and then and then forming a view over time and then using that information to either inform the public or in in some cases you know, issue a recall and say you can't use this drug anymore right yeah i i think that's it's a great idea and it's it's just so frustrating to me when we had the Moderna vaccine sometime in late March or something like that. And it's, they sat on it because in 1974, the story goes, you know, one in a hundred thousand people got Guillain-Barre and the swine flu vaccine. And, you know, the public health establishment is like, we don't want to go through that again. There's one in 100,000 yeah. people, you know, we'll kill 200,000 people in the interim. We're fine with that. Yeah. But, yeah. Like, well, yeah. And we actually, we actually had the Moderna vaccine in January. Even right? more horrifying. Like, Sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but no, but I mean, but there, I mean, even even if you like, if you um, you, you would still have to test the dosing and stuff and figure right. out what's what's the yeah. right dose and so on. So so, uh, but yeah, I think um, I think just uh, making it possible to um, for people to give informed consent at least and say like I want right. to try this, right? Like yeah, like I um, you know, uh, the bioethicist uh, Jessica Flanagan is really good at this, uh, uh, on this issue. She wrote a book called pharmaceutical freedom. And it's like, basically if you have, you know, if you believe in sort of the right of the patient to like determine the course of their own treatment and give informed consent, like, like it just, it just follows 
very naturally from that that you should let them you know experiment with things that haven't been approved or you know like you shouldn't shouldn't put the government in, in between the the doctor patient decision to to pursue a treatment right have, have is america just this brings the thought to me is america too litigious and you know we allow people to just like you know like oh god you approved this drug and then this bad thing happened and maybe does that feed into it or is that um, just not even i i used to think that like that was like a bigger piece of it but yeah. um but maybe not right maybe it's like it, it's not it's not the lawsuits that people are worried about in this case it's it's um yeah, I mean, the government has qualified immunity, right? So it was like, like, like if the if the government approves a drug and it turns out to be unsafe, like you can't, you don't have uh, recourse. So it's not like they're they're afraid of that. Um, it's um, it's rather that uh, I think that just we don't want to like we we see the bad the bad things like seem worse than the good things gotcha. seem good, right? And so like it's just. <laughs> It's um, it's just very, it's just conservatism, I think, on and gotcha. sort of a men mentality of, of conservatism, and 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 yeah, what? Why does it matter? Like, if something, it, you know, as I said, like if if the if the if the deaths are caused by approving a drug right. uh, versus not approving a drug, right. like intellectually, we know that it's not as bad, but like emotionally, I think for people, Feels it different. seems worse to die from a drug that you thought was approved, you know, that was approved and you thought was safe. Got it. Um, are you down for a round of overrated, underrated? Sure. Okay, cool. Uh, and I've got this theory that, uh, you know, if you're a big EMH believer, they're all like correctly rated, except for very circumstances. <laughs> like okay. Knowledge or something. Anyway, that's just my uh, funny thesis for the day. Um, so overrated or underrated, uh, the Concord. Uh, I think really underrated. Um so of course everybody you know everybody i think the, the sort of like i would say assess the conventional wisdom is like concord was a miracle of engineering for its time but it was right. like uneconomical like yeah you know it crashed once um and 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 so on but uh i think what the conventional wisdom gets wrong is like if concord existed today it would still be profitable right so Got like it. like like so if you think about the time that it um in 2003 was when it retired. Yeah. And in, uh, you know, I remember looking at this data when I was at Boom, it was like um, in the 15 years since then, right, from 2013 to 2018, uh, premium business class transatlantic service, uh, business, business and first class transatlantic service increased, I want to say more than doubled oh, wow. uh, in, that, in that period of time. Interesting. So, um, so, so basically the problem that the Concord suffered was that they couldn't fill the seats, right? And so right. airline economics is, has this funny dynamic, which is that, um, you know, you, you, if you fill, you know, charge one price and you can't fill the seats, um, you might be able to charge a lower price and fill more of the seats and make more money. Um, the marginal, the marginal value, like the marginal cost of a, of additional passenger is actually zero. Right. And so you, right. so, um, being able to fill the seats. Um, at a potentially even a lower price um, would uh, would have made the whole thing a lot more profitable. And that would have made it possible for you to have more Concords in service because only 14 saw service. Gotcha. Um, and if more of them were in service, then you would take care of the biggest problem that it had, which was maintenance costs. So gotcha. it was like spare parts, right? Like right. if you have a fleet of 14 jets and you have to like create spare parts for them, that's really hard. 
if you have a fleet that's a hundred times bigger, uh, then it's you know a lot more manageable. And, it's a right. lot more scalable. So I sort of my view is like if Concord, uh, even as inefficient as it was by modern standards in terms of you know engines and and materials, um, if it existed today, like it would still work. Nice. That's awesome. Uh, Bitcoin. Um, I think it's overrated by its proponents, uh, but I think like the idea of blockchains in general is like most is like still underrated by a lot of people. Um, so, you know, Bitcoin is this weird thing where it's like, uh, you know, somebody, you know, Satoshi invented like internet money. Yeah. Um, and, and then, um, you know, like sort of people who were interested in it were, were basically two kinds of people who were interested in it. One was uh, sort of like technical people who saw the technical achievement and were intrigued by it. Yeah. And really like hard money people, like like gold bugs and stuff like that. Right. And like they like found each other on the internet and <laughs> and and like it's infected like each other with their ideas. Yeah. Uh, and so basically like you have this like entire uh, you know group of people who like Bitcoin and now are totally convinced that like sort of like hard money theories are correct. Uh, and they aren't um, <laughs> very clearly they no are problem yeah um and uh and so you know i, I think it's unfortunate that uh that's because it, it, it bitcoin has become like such a strong meme and like this, this right. sort of like like limited supply and so on like yeah. has become such a strong meme that it's 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 hard to overcome but bitcoin is basically a meme coin at this point it's it's yeah. um it's valuable because of the bitcoin meme and there are other blockchains that are being developed to do more interesting things. Um, and, and on which, by the way, you could implement something that is technically superior to Bitcoin right. uh, as, a, as, a, like, as a token or whatever, right? You yeah. could and, and fix supply, you can do you could just hard money as you want. Uh, <laughs> and, and you could just do it as a token on another blockchain, but, um, but the Bitcoin meme has gotten very strong. But I think the idea though, the core idea of blockchain is still very, very strong and very very interesting like the idea of a logically unified but physically decentralized and therefore unstoppable resource right that the whole world can use is super interesting and valuable and for things uh, so i i spent uh, a few years working on internet governance and um and like you know, I was at the center of many fights over like the domain name system and stuff yeah, like that. You could just do the domain name system on a blockchain and like yeah. be done with it, right? Like it's it's like you don't have to have um you could have a, this sort of like centralized re resource, logically centralized, right. physically decentralized, and and don't worry about like states coming in and, and overtaking it. Definitely. It's 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 really interesting. Yeah, my my most interesting comment about Bitcoin is that 60 some odd percent of mining capability is in China. And if you know how good the, you know, PRC is at solving collective action problems and coordinating right. things, you should be concerned about this currency. It's <laughs> supposed to be completely, you know, abstracted away from governments. Um, right. Anyway. Right. Um, the space launch system. Oh man. It's, it's poorly rated, but probably still overrated. <laughs> uh, um, and and the way the reason I'd say that is that like I think the the conventional view is that it is, uh, it's it's a bad rocket, right? It's right. it's like it's like uh, not not high value for money. It's cost yeah. twenty billion dollars so far. Yeah. You know, it should have cost like half of that or less. Um, and you know whatever. 
but uh but i think it's actually like potentially like really unsafe and like oh, really? like, uh, like, like i i don't know i'm worried about it uh, <laughs> uh like, like we like the the marginal cost of a launch even even after we've spent all the development dollars yeah. the marginal cost of a launch is still going to be in the billions jesus jesus um you know when you think about uh spacex coming along with starship and it's you know launch cost is going to be something like I don't know. Like, like Elon will throw out numbers like one and a half billion dollars for a Starship launch. <laughs> Something take, comical. Take more, more. We can to pass space the hat than, around than and space get, it, get there. Right, right. So yeah. it's it. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it'll be that, but it'll be at least it'll be less than fifty million on on yeah. Starship. And so you know, you're talking about a twenty x uh, capability God. reduction versus Starship on on space launch system. Jesus, what a mess! What a mess! Um, one more GMU Econ. Oh, well, I loved my time at GMU. Uh, it's, I think they're still underrated. Uh, that department is phenomenal. Um, and I think, you know, I, it's just uh, interesting questions, interesting ways of thinking about the world that almost no one else is doing. And uh, although, you know, maybe uh, maybe I'll say like doing a graduate degree is overrated, right? Like <laughs> like people, uh, like I, I, I don't necessarily encourage everyone to go out and, and you know, follow my path and get an, uh, an econ PhD. But if you do, do it at GMU. It's, it's, to be. it's a great, it's a, it's a great, a great uh, community of people. Great. Well, Eli, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you? Uh, and do you have any parting thoughts? Um, so you can find me online uh, on uh, Twitter at Eli Dorado and on my website at elidorado.com and um, and my sort of professional work is at uh, the Center for Growth and Opportunity, the CGO.org. Um, parting thoughts, man. Uh, this has been a great conversation. I, you know, I just, I think it's just such so important that we actually, uh, you know, get get growth moving. Uh, and Definitely. you know, we've talked about a number of ways that uh, a number of reasons that it's not happening, and now we have to find solutions. That's great. Thanks, Eli. Thanks for having me on. Well. That's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives. 